If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Samuel. The book of Samuel. If you're not that familiar with your Old Testament, it's shortly after the book of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible. And then you run into Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then first and second Samuel. Um, this morning we're beginning a journey through the book of first and second Samuel, which uh, I must say I'm extremely excited for. Uh, it is from the book of Samuel that we have some of our most memorable stories from Scripture. The book is filled with stories of great battles, like David and Goliath. Stories of deep friendship, like that of Jonathan and, and David. And stories of broken relationships, like that between David and Saul. We have so many stories, so many highlight reels, if you will, that the reader can become lost in tales of war and David's mighty men and tales of secrecy and military maneuvers, acts of betrayal and uh, acts of bravery. You see, the book of Samuel is very much one filled with headlines. And as we know from our 24-hour news cycle world, we love headlines. As a matter of fact, sometimes my wife and I talk to each other in headlines. Like when I fly off the handle and my wife immediately goes to the news story, local pastor yells at kid in restaurant. We, we love our headlines. We, we humans love a good headline. So, so, pastor, why Samuel and why now? Those are two questions I want to start off with this morning. Why the book of Samuel and why now? And really, it, it goes back to my approach to preaching through this book and being committed to preaching Christ from every page of this book uh, typically, what we do in this church is we'll preach through an Old Testament book and then a New Testament book. Um, in there, we'll also break out the Old Testament between the way Jesus broke out the Old Testament between the law, which is generally the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you have the prophets uh, and then the writings. And then in the New Testament, you have the Gospels, of course, the book of Acts. You have all the writings of Paul. And then you have the epistles of the other apostles. And so generally, what I do when I preach through the Scriptures and preaching through this book, I've been here now over three years, uh, is I'll go from book to book. So when I first got here, we opened up in the book, The Gospel According to Mark. And if you've been around for any length of time, you know we just finished that book like three weeks ago, it feels like. Um, so... <clears throat> But what we're going to do is we jump around from New Testament to Old and from different section to different sections so that you will be familiar with this book, with these scriptures that we say we love. However, if you've been paying attention this year, you'll notice that I uh, have uh, broken from that traditional style, the systematic approach to the scriptures, and did many more topical types of sermons centered around godly habits, church vision, where we're heading as a church, gospel culture. And the reason for this is as a pastor, uh, I'm called to shepherd a, a real-life group of people. That's you. That's you. What I mean by that is I'm not called to pastor people out there. You, you, are you tracking with me? Like you, We are real people in a real room with real problems, real sin issues, real things that we need to face and tackle. What does the Scripture say about this or that? About three months ago, I sat down with the elders, the deacons of the church, and let them know that I wasn't sure what to preach after Easter. Uh, it was about that time we would be finishing up the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the Lord had not yet given me anything that I felt that we needed specifically as far as issues we needed to tackle from the Scriptures to help us grow in godliness. 
Uh, and during that meeting, a few ideas were suggested, one of which was preach a series on how the Old Testament is both important and relevant to Christians today. The other was preach through Samuel because we love to hear the great stories and the headlines. I took both of these ideas back and began to pray through them, pray over them, that the Lord would show me where we should head next together as a church. And while I was praying through it, I was also preaching through the series we just ended last week on gospel culture and felt that it was time to settle in for a nice long journey through one of the bigger books of the Bible, the book of Samuel. So I took that suggestion and combined them together with the sermon series that we have now before us, Samuel, God's grace to flawed people. God's grace to flawed people. Now, before we dig into our text this morning in 1 Samuel, we're going to spend a few moments just laying down some ground rules about how I and how we as a church and as Christians living on this side of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection should approach the Old Testament. So just a few things here for you. Number one, according to Jesus himself, all of the Old Testament was about him. Every line, every page, every story was a story ultimately about him. Of course, I get this from Jesus' own words in John chapter 5, verse 39. In rebuking the Pharisees, he said this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Therefore, any reading of the Old Testament which doesn't lead us to Jesus is a flawed reading. This means that as Christians, we must read Samuel in light of Jesus. And so many of us, so many Christians today, try to approach the Old Testament the way we approach a good spy thriller or a good whodunit, if you will. We say, well, we've got to read the first part of the book before we read the last page. But that approach to Scripture is always backwards. For Jesus himself said, these, these stories, the books, the headlines, everything in Samuel is a pointer to him. So we know that going in because Jesus said it. Number two, the Old Testament is not raw historical footage. Rather, it is a documentary with events and stories that have been curated by the writer and by the Holy Spirit to lead us into something. What I mean is that the writers of the Old Testament are not giving you a mere play-by-play -play action of what's going on. Instead, they're telling you what's happening and then interpreting it for you, the reader. This means that a writer's choice to use some words over other words are intentional and deliberate. And a good attentive reader will pick up on clues the writer is leaving in the text. Furthermore, it is not our job to approach the Old Testament with a view to find out what really happened, Pastor. What really happened? We start with the fundamental aspect that this word is true because it's God's word. It flows out of God's character. Therefore, it contains no faults. But that's not the question we should be asking but rather the Old Testament, we should approach the Old Testament with a view to understand, how should I understand what's happened? Friends, this will revolutionize the way you actually read the scriptures. When you merely accept the book as fact and start from not trying to make it fit into your worldview, but rather let this shape your worldview. Well, then you'll be able to see what the writers want you to see, what God wants you to see. 
Number three, sometimes the writer in the Old Testament tells you, the reader, very explicitly the interpretation it wants you to know. So, for example, the Gospel according to John, do you guys know how he ends that book? He ends it by saying, which, by the way, the Gospel of John, if you're not familiar, it has seven uh, miracles, if you will, that, that walks through Jesus' life, the seven miracles that it traces. And, and you may be, uh, what, didn't Jesus do more than seven miracles? Well, of course. As a matter of fact, the writer of John actually tells you this when he says, Jesus did many more than this. As a matter of fact, if we were to try to write them all down, we would not fit it into one book. But, he says, these have been given to you. These have been wrote down so that you might believe. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, the Old Testament is not just mere raw footage of what happens like when you take a video on your iPhone. You take a video on your iPhone without editing it, without cutting it and parsing it and putting it together. You're merely recording what happened and letting the viewers of that make up their own mind. But rather, the Old Testament is like a documentary. It's been parsed together. It's been fit together. It's been interpreted for you so that you might know what you need to know. Let me give you an example. If you're in, in Samuel, go ahead and look at uh, Samuel chapter 2 real quick. Very quick example of sometimes the Old Testament actually tells you very explicitly what it wants you to actually know. So in Samuel chapter 2, uh, verse 12. This is talking about sons of Eli. We'll get to Eli in a minute. Eli was a judge. It says this in, in verse 12 of chapter 2. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And then look down at verse 17. It says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Stop there for a second. What does the writer want you to know about these young boys, these, these sons of Eli. What does it want you to know? It wants you to know that these were worthless men. Why? Because they didn't know the Lord. As a matter of fact, that's why the writer of the book of Samuel actually tells you, he says they were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And what they did was uh, what was very great in the sight of the Lord for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. It gives you reasons why it's saying what it's saying. It's giving you the reason why these were worthless men. It tells you very explicitly the interpretation that you should know and accept. Number four, though. However, the more common way the Bible in interprets itself, it tells you what it wants you to know, what it wants you to feel, how it wants you to live in light of it, is through very subtle means. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, which, compared to English language, is a much more restricted vocabulary, meaning it's not as fine-grained they didn't have as many words to which to, to go and pull from to tell the story of God. The implication of this is that the writers in the Old Testament had to exploit the fact that words have multiple meanings and therefore at times make word plays and puns that a close reader would pick up on. What I'm not saying is I'm not saying that the Bible is full of secret codes which you need me to interpret for you. But rather what I am doing is saying that pointing out the fact that this is merely the way the Hebrew language works, the way all language works. Another common way the Bible interprets itself is in presenting it through the use of analogy. What I mean here is that the earlier characters that we find in Scripture, the earlier events that we find in Scripture are understood as figures of later characters and events. And the text is written in a way that makes the connection clear if you're paying attention. 
This means that the analogies that exist in the text provide clues and signposts too, which help us as readers understand what the writer wanted us to understand. And when we fail to see these analogies, the writer intended for us to see, well, then oftentimes we're left with stories where we're not quite sure who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, what is sin, what isn't sin. Which leads to my next point. All of our, number five, all of our reading and all of our preaching of the Old Testament should meet us where we are. This means that the headlines in Samuel are vastly important for understanding the world in which you and I live today. It means that when we read the Old Testament, we should know how it points us to Jesus. But we should also know how it makes, how it's supposed to then impact our lives. You see, preaching which says uh, David is the, the better Jesus, but doesn't actually point us into, well, what do we do with that pastor? Is disconnected from our daily lives. We should know how it's supposed to help us grow in godliness, which is what Paul tells Timothy is the reason all scripture was given. Number six, lastly, we should not read the text from our own lived experience, should not read the text from our own lived experiences, but we should read our own lived experiences from the text. Meaning when we approach this book and we say, well, this is what is true for me. What's the Bible say to that? That's the wrong way to look at the scriptures. As a matter of fact, we should look at the scriptures and say, how do we know what life really is? What does life mean? What is our purpose in life? All right, let's jump into the text because that's enough of the Old Testament banter. Look at it with me. Let's go ahead and jump in. First Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. By the way, uh, I threw this on Philip like two seconds before we started singing. Uh, so there's a lot of, lot of funny words in here, words we don't use, uh, and he absolutely slayed it. Um, man knows his Bible. Look with me at verse 1. There was a certain man of Rathamathium, he's probably done it better than me, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tuhu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other, Peniah. And Peniah had children, and Hannah had no children. Now the man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli and Hophine and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And the rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you? The ten sons. I've already stated that the book of Samuel is filled with great tales of adventure. But the book doesn't start in a place you would expect, at least if you're like me, a love of action movies. You see, you might expect the camera to zoom in on Chris Hemsworth playing the character of David as he's beginning to run headlong to face a giant in a valley that no one else dared. Only then to zoom back and tell the full story of how did Chris Hemsworth as David end up in this spot? 
Which, by the way, if you've seen the movie Extraction with Chris Hemsworth, this is exactly how that movie begins. Chris Hemsworth's there on a busted bridge, bullets flying, blood coming out his shoulders, uh, mud all over his face. The, the movie begins there, it zooms in, and then it zooms out. But that's not where this book begins. In fact, this book begins by introducing us to a man, a, a certain na- man named Elkanah. And we're given his ancestry page going back four generations before being introduced to his two wives, Hannah and Penea. Just a note in passing here, lest you read this text as God giving you the green light, men or women, on having multiple spouses, Genesis 2 gives the sense that marriage was always meant for one man and one woman. The fact that Elkanah and others are here presented with multiple wives is not a stamp of approval but rather showing you, the reader, that the people in these stories, the people on these pages, were flawed people themselves. Which, by the way, is great news for you and I, because we all have flaws. We'll tackle this issue at length more as we progress through the book, and not at this point, because at this point, the writer doesn't, he just merely says it in passing, doesn't he? What's the writer want you to notice, though, about the fact that he has two wives? Did you see how the the writer introduced you to the story. Do you notice the structure of how the wives are introduced in verse 2? Look at it again. Verse 2, he introduces the first wife, Hannah. And he introduces the second wife, Penea. And then he says about the second wife, she has no children. And then he zooms out to the first wife, or the second wife has children, the first wife has no children. And from verse 2, you can already feel the weight of this text, can't you? You see, the name Hannah means favored one. And we're told in verse 5 that Hannah is indeed the favored wife of Elkanah. But notice that her current condition contradicted her name. Her name says she's the favored one, but her condition says she's barren. So the reader's left with the question, how can the favored one be barren? Of course, the writer is as I already mentioned, is, is wanting you to already pick up. If you're familiar with your scriptures, then you'll know that Hannah's condition puts her in a line of other women in the book of Moses. You see, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, was barren. Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, was barren. Rachel, the wife of Jacob, was barren. And in the book of Genesis, barrenness is more than just a family issue, isn't it? It's, it's more than just uh, interpersonal relational issues within a family of not having a child. In the book of Genesis, not having a child poses a greater problem to the story. Namely, the fact that God has promised that through the seed of a woman, a Savior would come. So barrenness in, in Moses' writing, in the book of Genesis, was this massive ordeal. Will God be faithful to his promise? See, the writer's introducing all of this in the first two verses. How can the favored one be barren here at the beginning of the story? Do you remember the last words Moses gave the nation of Israel before they entered into the promised land? Through Moses, the Lord gave them instructions on what would happen if they remained faithful to him. And what would happen if they became unfaithful? It goes like this. I'll read it for you. You don't have to go there. Deuteronomy chapter 28 Verse 15 says this, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I commanded you today, 
Then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be, shall be your basket and kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. The increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. You see, the book of Samuel begins in a period of what's known as the, the, the time of the judges. In short, the summary of the book of Judges is where a time of God's people would become unfaithful and they would begin to experience the curses that Moses had begun to say at the end of Deuteronomy. And what would happen in the book of Judges is God would raise up a judge, uh, a leader amongst the people of Israel to point them back to the faithful covenant God and say, remember him, be like him, listen to his commandments, be faithful to him, And what would happen in the book of Judges is the people would listen and they would slowly begin to turn back to the Lord. And what would happen is the Lord's blessings would begin to flow upon them. And before you know it, the people began to fall away again. And they would begin to fall away again until they hit such a point that the Lord would raise up another judge. This is the story of the book of Judges, and the, the book of Judges actually ends with the stories uh, about corrupt Levites, who, by the way, were the, the people who were supposed to be the religious leaders of Israel, the people who were, worked in the temple. In the last verse, the last line in the book of Judges says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is where the book of Samuel picks up the story. You see, what's happening with Hannah? How can the, bear, how can the favor one be barren? You see, the story is that <clears throat> Hannah and Elkanah's family is really a mini version of Israel's story at large. Look again with me in verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penea, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. What does the author repeat here? He, he, he wants you to see something. That's what I mean. It's like when we slow down to read the scriptures, and slow down to read the Old Testament, we really get the what the author wants us to see. And one of the ways they do it is by repeating themselves. Did you notice it? What is the reason Hannah could not conceive a child? Was it mental stress? Was it poor health condition? No. It was the Lord who closed her womb. The author here minces no words. He wants you to see that the reason Hannah cannot get pregnant is because of the Lord. I wonder, do you ever consider the situations that you're in in your life to be because of the Lord? The text teaches us that God may create social and natural tragedies to accomplish his purposes that will be far better than the tragedy itself. I'll say it again. The text teaches us that God may be the one who's creating social and natural tragedies to accomplish his purposes that will be far better than the tragedy itself. This means that as you view the circumstances of your life, 
especially the circumstances which you approach and say, I cannot make sense of this. You cannot fully evaluate or appreciate all that God is doing without knowing the end results and what God is going to accomplish through them. Think about Hannah's position here for a moment. God has commanded humanity and Israel specifically to be fruitful and multiply. And the same God who said be fruitful and multiplied has closed her womb. What will Hannah do? You see, her story is really Israel's story. Israel had uh, fallen away. Israel had become barren in the time of the judges. They, like Hannah, had a choice. Will they throw their hands up in frustration? Or will they turn back to the covenantal God? Notice that Penea is ridiculing her, taunting her. The, the text calls her a rival. She's saying things like, well, you might as well go ahead and give in and accept life as it is. What will Hannah do? Will she cave under the pressure? Or will she be faithful? Look at verse 9. And they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Just pause right there. Just keep your finger on the text. Uh, this, is a, this is actually what's part of the issue in Israel society at this point in time. You see, here's Eli, the judge at the time, uh, sitting outside the temple, outside the tabernacle there in Shiloh. And he doesn't even realize this woman's here to pray. And he's the religious leader. More on that in a few weeks. Eli said to her, verse 14, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. He couldn't even recognize that this was real prayer. Verse 16, Do not regard your servant as a worthless, make note of that word, worthless woman. That'll come up in a few weeks as we look more at the sons of Eli who were what? Worthless men. You see what the authors are doing here. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You see, Hannah had the choice to trust God. To believe that he was gracious, that he was good, and that he was truly the one in control. Or simply walk away from it all. And she chose to believe. You see, Hannah becomes what the scriptures call a faithful remnant. She was a true believer of Yahweh. She knew that he was the, ultimately the one in control of not only the good in life, but the bad in life as well. Therefore, her response was to pour out her heart with all of her bitterness, with all of her despair before 
the Lord. Hannah knew that going to God was the only way forward. And her prayer in verse 11 was an acknowledgement and an admission that God alone is the one who can open the locked door in front of her. Church, as you face insurmountable odds in your life, when you're left feeling isolated, when you're left feeling alone, when you are barren, your only proper response is to run to the Father. Hannah was a light in the darkness. In the midst of the world that was the time of the judges, here was a woman who, by the way, no other woman had ever went to the temple by herself. No other woman had such a faith mentioned like Hannah. No other woman had made a vow like Hannah made a vow. And her vow, notice what it was here, was to give her son back to the Lord for service. Look again at verse 11. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me, not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him, notice the, the, this, this giving, right? The Lord gives and Hannah will give back. The Lord gives, Hannah will give back. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. This last line of no razor touching his head is a promise that her son would be a Nazarite. And according to Numbers chapter 6, a Nazarite was someone who separated himself from wine, from grapes, from cutting their hair, and from the dead. The Nazarite resembled a priest, and especially the high priest. They were supposed to live their entire lives in holy service to the Lord. According to one commentator, there are three permanent Nazarites in all of the Bible. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. Each of them was born to a barren woman. Samuel typifies the ministry of John. You see, as Samuel prepared the people for the reign of King David, so John turned the hearts of the fathers to the children and prepared a people for the coming of the Davidic king, Jesus Christ. And so Hannah goes and makes this prayer at the temple. And what happens in the next verse is mind-blowing. Look at verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It's taken 18 verses for the author to, to show you this woman is barren. This woman has massive, uh, a massive problem in her life. She has no offspring, and yet her heart position is one that will serve the Lord, that will give back to the Lord, and in one verse... The entire story turns. The Lord remembered her. If you're familiar with your Old Testament scriptures, this Lord remembering is nothing new. As a matter of fact, there's, uh, it's an echo of what's happened back in Genesis chapter 8, where God has given Noah the commands to build the ark, to save himself and his family. And the rains come and the waters fall. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, it says, God remembered Noah. This doesn't mean that God forgot about him as if God was off busy doing something else. Like, oh, my boy Noah's on the boat. Let me close the door. It's not that kind of remembering. No, no, no. This, this remembering is language that we will understand that, that God remembers Noah, 
Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Here, Hannah finds grace in the eyes of God. Not only that, that's not the only place we find this God-remembering language. We also see it in Exodus chapter 2. The children of Israel have went down to uh, Egypt to uh, save themselves from famine. At the end of Genesis, you remember the story. And in, and in Egypt, their families grow and they are enslaved by the Egyptians. And at that point, the readers left in the story, if you've read up to Exodus chapter 2, like, now what, God? How are you going to fix this? For the Savior is supposed to come from the tribe of Judah, but Judah seems to be in chains in, chains in, in, in Egypt. So, so how's he going to do it? And then Exodus chapter 2, the Lord says, I've heard the cry of my people. I've remembered them. You see, Hannah is standing in a line of God remembering his people, of God giving grace to his people. But look at it with verse 20 then as well. After she conceives, she has a child. The Lord remembers her in verse 20 in due time, about nine to ten months. Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now I need to point something out to you here because this is in English. We're all reading this book in English, right? No one came up in here with the Hebrew scriptures, I'm assuming. Okay. The issue here, there's an issue here. Because the, 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 the Hebrew words that for Samuel doesn't actually mean, I have asked for him from the Lord. Which is, by the way, when you're reading the Old Testament, you're like, oh yeah, of course it means that because we don't know Hebrew. But this is, the author is beginning to introduce another key, key theme which will run throughout this book. In verse 20, it says that he was called Samuel because he had been asked of Yahweh. That's what it, in, in the Hebrew, asked of Yahweh. The word asked is used a number of times throughout chapter 1, right? In verse 17, verse 20, 27, 28, she's asking the Lord. Eli asked her. But the name Samuel does not mean precisely, I have asked the Lord for him. Rather, it's, it's two words in the Hebrew. It's Shem, which means name, and El means God. So Samuel, the word Samuel could be interpreted as his name is God. The word for asked is the verb shawal, close enough to make this a, a word which the translators are like, yeah, I think it's, it's probably right, but distant enough to make us suspect that maybe something else is actually going on here. The story, this, this type of word becomes more significant as the story of 1 Samuel progresses. You see in chapter 9, we're introduced to a man whose name actually means asked. His name is Saul. Saul was asked for by the people. But chapter 1 is already preparing the, the, the is already setting the stage so that when you get to Saul, there's already going to be a contrast between Samuel and Saul. The contrast helps to explain why the people, by the way, are wrong to ask for Saul, to ask for a king. They received Saul after asking for a king, but they had already had, uh, had an asked for, one asked for, namely Samuel. Israel should have been content with their judge, Samuel, but they wanted, a, waited for, they wanted God to give them a king. You see, they should have waited. 
It's all wordplay. We'll, 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 we'll dig more of this out as we go through. I just want to make mention of it there for you. Look at verse 21. We're almost done here. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an epaph of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. It's about two or three years old at this point, scholars believe. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he has lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. You see, Samuel's parents bring him to Shiloh after he was weaned. This was sometimes uh, elaborately celebrated in the ancient world since it marked his transfer. Uh, it marked a child's transfer from his mother's care to his father's care. More than Samuel's weaning, however, this story is focusing his attention on Samuel's, Samuel's transfer from his father's house to the house of Eli. Eli would be the one to raise Samuel, to act as his substitute father. And this passage describes Eli's adoption of Samuel. Eli's paternal relation to Samuel forms the background for the contrast between Eli's natural sons, the two sons who are being named worthless in chapter 2, and Samuel, the one who worships before the Lord. Father-son relations are, moreover, prominent throughout the book of Samuel. Samuel's troublesome sons provide a pretext for the people to ask for a king. It's because of Eli's sons, by the way. We'll find this out as we venture through this story, but I just got to lay these seeds here in the beginning. It's the Eli's sons which will cause the people to actually begin to want a king, to ask uh, Samuel for a king. Saul was adopted as Samuel's son. Later, David becomes a son-in-law to Saul, and much of the account of David's reign in 2 Samuel is taken up with David's difficulties with his own sons. You see, the theme of sonhood and, and fatherhood and adoption become all the more prevalent as this story progresses in each of these cases. Biological sons were replaced by adopted sons. Just as Eli and his sons lost the priesthood and Samuel supplanted them, so Samuel's sons were supplanted by Saul and Saul's son by David. In contrast to Genesis, the true son in 1 and 2 Samuel is not a younger biological son, but an adopted son who comes from outside of genealogy, outside the genealogy. This, of course, points us to Jesus, the miracle-born son of Adam who displaced his fallen father. 1 and 2 Samuel thus make, take the, the, the story in Genesis and make it more precise by showing that the seed the seed of Jesus, the, where Jesus would come from, would not come from the normal channels of fleshly descent, but would be the one born according to the Spirit. So let me land the plane here. Began this, uh, diving into this text by asking the question, how can the favored one be barren? But 1 Samuel chapter 1 is not primarily about Hannah. 
nor is it about Elkanah or Eli. Rather, this story is about God. 1 Samuel begins by showing us that God cared for Hannah. And we'll see as the story unfolds that, it, that unfolds that his care for Hannah was his care for Israel. What he did for Hannah would turn out to be what he does for Israel. Samuel, and indeed, uh, <clears throat> Samuel would turn out to be, in other ways, part of God's answer to Israel's leadership problems. 1 Samuel chapter 1 points us to the most unexpected starting place for the answer that God is going to provide for this leadership crisis in the nation. Who would have looked twice at this miserable, sobbing Hannah for the answer to Israel's crisis? We expect to find answers from the powerful, but Hannah was not powerful. Her family were a bunch of nobodies. The point of the story, the point of her story, the point of your story, by the way, is that God cares. God cares. He cared about the leadership of his people in Israel, and he gave Hannah a son. He cares about the leadership of the world around us, and Hannah's son will be surpassed by Mary's son. God's care for us all finds its fullest expression in Jesus. You see, if you belong to Jesus, you can learn to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, First Peter So what I want you to walk away with this morning is understanding that all these stories, all the headlines in Samuel are meant to point us to Jesus and then to know how to walk as his people in his world. So when you're facing difficulties, when, you're, when you have massive, insurmountable things in front of you, don't say, God's nowhere. Because then you look like unfaithful Israel and not faithful Hannah, and not faithful Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we begin this series through the book of Samuel, which is God's grace to flawed people, Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves primarily as flawed people, flawed people that you love and that you care for. That as Hannah is favored, Lord, you favor your church and your people. So, Father, Lord, we pray, Lord, that whatever... Um, comes our way, whatever is currently in front of us, that we would not judge it by the eyes of which we see everything else in our world around us, but that we would judge it with the eyes of faith, that we would come to you, all of our vexation, all of our anxiety, all of our depression, and we would come to you for you care for us. May we be honest with you, may we pour ourselves out before you as Hannah did. Father, we know, like Hannah knew, that you are the God who saves. We know that because of Jesus and his work on the cross, Lord, we will be heard. And as, as you remembered her, so you will remember us. You will not leave us nor forsake us. But I pray that we would believe all this and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As the deacons